Hey everyone, thank you for tuning in. Welcome to the Prayer House Podcast. Our mission and vision is simple, to spread the good news and the gospel to the ends of the world and to do it by building a community whose foundation is Jesus Christ. So welcome to the family. We hope you guys enjoy this message and that it is a blessing to you. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, this is a huge honor to be a part of this group. I've heard um, sweet things said about this group of believers. And it's, it was a great honor to be asked to speak tonight. Um, yes, I'm Lindsay. I live in Connecticut. Uh, my husband and I minister at the University of Connecticut. Um, we have three kids that I homeschool. Actually, my computer is on top of a box of Play-Doh and crayons to make it high enough um, so you're not looking up at me. But this, I sit in this dining room um, for four or five hours every day um, homeschooling my kids. And we, uh, we usually have fun. Some days are hard, but we, we enjoy it. And it's, it's an, a great honor to be able to do that um, with my kids. Gil and I have been doing campus ministry for 18 years. Um, and I feel very old saying that, but that's the reality. Um, we enjoy being on campus. We enjoy working with students. We enjoy uh, that season of life and being able to shape it and um, influence it and mentor young people like yourselves. Um, and so we, we consider it a great honor that we get to work with the nation's best and brightest young people. So tonight, um, I did want to share with you about beholding and beholding God and what it, what it means to behold God, what it looks like to behold God. Um, and we're going to look at a few people in the Bible who beheld God and um, what they looked like and, and the influence that that had on their life and the people around them. So if you will, um, turn in your Bible to Acts chapter four uh, with me. <clears throat> and I have a kind of a longer chunk to read. And then we're going to talk about a very specific aspect of that passage. So starting in the in verse one, Acts chapter four. It says, the priest and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed. So the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Ananias, the high priest, was there, and so was Sophias, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them, by what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if, you, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed." Jesus is the stone you builders re your builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. 
when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men who were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they have performed a notable sign, and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in his name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, what is right in God's eyes to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. So Peter and John had been arrested and the Sanhedrin and the leaders could not, uh, could not figure out how to punish them and ask them to go and not speak or teach in the name of Jesus anymore. But of course, we know that that didn't happen. They continued to do that. But the passage, the part of this passage that I love the most is in verse 13. It says, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. So the people who were mad that were arresting them could tell that, that they had been with Jesus. And so I wonder, I want to ask us all today, do people, when they interact with us, know we have been with Jesus? Is that something that people can tell about us? One of the commentators that I loved uh, reading about this, he said, possibly they recognized them as having been in his company. Remember that they had, had seen him, them with Jesus already. But he says, but more probably, perceiving in their whole bearing what identified them with Jesus, that is, we thought we got rid of him. But still, he reappears in these men, and all that troubles us in the Nazarene himself has yet to be put down in his disciples. What a testimony to these primitive witnesses would that be said of us also, that the influence, that the, the time spent with Jesus would be seen by people around us that interact with us because of the time we've spent with him. And it makes me uh, wonder, there's a phrase um, that was said by William Blake, Blake. He was a French poet and a painter in the 17 and 1800s. And he was kind of known, he was a Christian, but he was kind of known for being a very strange Christian. He, um, he claimed to have had visions of Jesus and the disciples and uh, being able to see things in the spiritual world. And so people of his time sort of tossed him out as, as kind of a crazy guy. Uh, but he had a, a phrase that he said, you become what you behold. And as an artist, as somebody who spends a lot of time looking at his own art or at the art of other people or at the subject he's, he's painting or, or sculpting, um, 
or at the, the idea or the world around him of which he's writing about, writing his poetry about, he spent a lot of time looking at things and people and processing ideas. And as, as somebody who has art that is, is still looked at today, he, he, he was probably well aware of, the, of how influential the things that we look at leaves an impression upon us and the, and the kind of influence that has in our life. Um, and thankfully that he was a believer and he could process these things that he was looking at and, and painting and writing about through the lens of his relationship with God. Um, but that quote, you become what you behold is um, a super a powerful thought that these things that we put in front of us, influence us. Um, and whenever I'm, I'm not an enjoyer of looking at art, I, I, I struggle with trying to uh, think and get into the mind of the artist. I don't like assuming I know what people are trying to communicate to me. I like to be told exactly what I need to know about something. Um, and so to, to think about the idea of art having an influence on me, um, I, I actually researched this. There's a gallery. <clears throat> there's many that, that teach you how to do this. But there's a gallery in Missouri called the West Park Art Gallery. And they offer tips for people like me who are not good or don't really enjoy viewing fine art. And they tell us how to do it. So the step one is to spend time with art. They say, if you only have a moment, take that moment to consider the work of art. If you only give it a moment though, you'll only generate a moment's opinion. Some of the most enriching and fascinating artwork requires an investment of time to fully appreciate it. And I'm not one to invest time in looking at art. I've got lots of plates spinning and I don't need to be sitting there looking at what somebody else designed but I'm learning. Number two, determine the basics. Determine the medium the artist used, who the artist was, the time period when they lived and when the art was created and what was happening in their world around them at the time. Determine the genre. Look at the scale and the format and the size of the painting or the piece of art. Look at the, the frame that it's hung in. Look at the way the light is hitting it and, and how the artist, if it's somebody who's um, alive and available to install their own art pieces. How have they designed the light to be cast upon it? <clears throat> Number three, notice your eye movements. Notice where your eye is immediately drawn to and how it moves across the painting. Artists are masters at drawing your eyes where they want them to go, which is also very amazing that an artist can be an influencer in our world. They also say if there's, if the art is of a person, look at where the person's eyes are looking. What is that person in the piece of art looking at? What is their eye telling us, pointing us to the thing that we are to be paying attention to? Number four, do research. Any amount of information you find out will deepen your appreciation of the piece of art. How does the art make you feel? What emotions are felt when you pay attention to a piece? 
Does an image make you angry? Does it make you sad? Does it inspire you? Does it want to make you write or, or have some type of response to what you've noticed? And then six, draw on your memory. Consider what you know about that subject, if it's a historical moment or if it's of a historical person. Are you seeing this moment or item from a different perspective than the artist? And living in a time period in history where we can look back upon old art, we have the benefit of having um, knowledge and more revelation about time and history and all kinds of things. So we will have a different understanding of a piece of art than maybe somebody 100 or 200 or 300 years ago. And it makes me wonder if people have spent the time beholding art or explaining to me how to behold art, how do these tips and these ideas of beholding things apply to how we behold God? Are there parallels to the way somebody would behold a piece of fine art to the way we should behold God? And when I think about beholding God, it, it, it reminds me of the moment in Exodus chapter 34, when he is given the assignment of going up to Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments. And when he comes back down from the mountain, he has to veil his face because this interaction with God has changed him. The people that look at him, <clears throat> the people that interact with him now need to have a barrier in between the face of Moses and them because the face of Moses saw the face of God. And that changed him. Moses beheld God in that moment and that that left an impression on him um, that had to have a physical barrier between him and the next person. So how are our moments with God changing us? How, are, how is the time we spend with God leaving an impression on us? And are the people around us noticing it? We do, sometimes we, we may not have to say a word. People will approach us. In fact, a couple of nights ago, uh, my husband and I were watching this Netflix documentary on minimalism. And um, the, the guy was saying that he had become a minimalist and he found this great joy. And, and his friend said, I saw a difference in him. And I wanted to know what the difference was. What was he doing that was making him so happy? And it just made me think, like, if, if being a minimalist can create so much joy, imagine how much joy people would be seeing from us when we are have beheld God and we're now living that way so much more so than being a minimalist and the joy that non-clutter provides like the joy that God provides is so much better than that so people should see that from us even more so <clears throat> and I was thinking what are what are the things that we spend time beholding and if you can think back to when you were younger, there's probably a person that you really admired or that you wanted to be like when you grew up. And I don't know if this was just a young girl thing, but I paid attention to how my teachers would would write on the chalkboard or would walk or would click their chalk in between their rings on their fingers and you could hear that clicking and you could tell certain 
um, walks down the school hallways because they walked a certain way. Or if you could see them from a far away, you couldn't quite tell who it was, but if you saw them walk, you could identify them based on a walk. I might be the only person who can identify people based on their walk, but it I can. But my favorite teacher <clears throat> was my kindergarten teacher. And she was one of the first adults in my life who I felt safe with and that I loved. I remember the first day of kindergarten. I don't know if I remember it or if I've just heard the story told enough that I think I remember it. But the story goes, I was so scared to go that I put both my arms on the door frame and both my legs on the door frame. And I just kind of prevented the people from letting me get into that room. And I remember the teacher walking out of the room and met me in the hallway. Her name was Mrs. Ogburn. And she so wonderfully calmed my fears about going into this room full of kids and being away from my siblings and my mom all day. And, and I loved her. She had long, like waist length brown hair. And it was, she would always like put it in one little clip in the back and it was just thick and she was so sweet. And it was a private school and it was a long time ago. So this particular thing I'm about to tell you would not be allowed in schools today. But in her desk drawer, she kept um, like a kitchen, like a steak knife, so that she could help us cut our apples and peel our oranges for us. And to have somebody who was just prepared to help a five or six year old every day, she would help us with our juice boxes. And, and she just left such an impression on me that she was so kind and caring and safe. And I was so thankful for her. And it was years later that I came across this a kit of homeschool stuff, shockingly, because I'm always talking about homeschool stuff. And immediately I recognized this set of alphabet cards based on the color that was like an orange and yellow and like brown and green, like very earth tony, early 80s popular color scheme of the alphabet. And it was a letter and a Bible verse. And I was like, that's the alphabet letter set that Miss Ogburn had in our kindergarten classroom. And I was immediately taken back to this moment and this season of my life that I loved. And I just wanted to be like her. And um, of course, many people, maybe they do now, I don't know, but I didn't keep up with my kindergarten teacher. Uh, but I found her on social media about two years ago, and I've been been interacting with her, and it's been such a joy. And it's without even knowing it, I began emulating my life like her life. She ended up getting married and having kids and, re and resigning from teaching to homeschool her kids. And I was like, wait, I'm a homeschool mom. You're a homeschool. It was just this great thing. And I was like, I so wanted to grow up to be like her and accidentally I did. And I was really excited and uh, thankful for that. But who was it when you were a kid or maybe even now, who is somebody who you would like to emulate? Think about that for a moment. Um, but I also wanted to go back to this concept of art. Um, a few years ago, Gil and the kids and I went to Phoenix. And what's the popular thing to do when you go to Arizona is to visit the Grand Canyon. And I remember um, hearing a park ranger talk about uh, one aspect of the Grand Canyon. I went when I was a kid, but 
as a like an eight-year-old, like the Grand Canyon is just this giant crack that you're like, yeah, it's huge. Let's go. Like, how how do you how do you comprehend the bigness of how big the Grand Canyon is when you're eight? But as an adult, I realized this thing is absolutely massive. And if you've been there before, you know that it's so large, it covers multiple ecosystems. The weather at the top is different than the weather at the bottom. The weather at one end is different than the weather at the other end. And it's such a massive beast. And the, um, the park ranger was saying that artists, specifically painters that come to, to paint the Grand Canyon get very frustrated because they'll come in the morning, they'll have their spot picked out and they'll get there and start to work on mixing their, their paint palette to the right colors that they're seeing. And by the time they get their paint mixed and ready to go, the sun and the light has shifted just enough to change all of the colors and all the shadows have, have shifted and all of the rocks and crevices that, we, that they now see are different because the light moved just for 15 minutes. It, it now is an entirely different thing to paint. And so artists have a difficult time painting this, this massive creation. And I wonder if the grandeur and the bigness and the majesty of the Grand Canyon is something that's too big for us to comprehend. Can we compare that to the bigness and the grandeur and the majesty of God? Can we comprehend those things? Absolutely not. We can't comprehend how big he is, but we can spend time like this art gallery has taught me to do beholding one aspect. What is one aspect when you think of beholding God, what is one aspect of him that catches your eye? What is the first thing that you're drawn to? Or what is the first thing that you are hesitant to be drawn toward? And that would, would bring a pause and a time to notice. What is something that we, that we notice and that we, we stop and pause about God? And when we spend time beholding this God that we love so much, like Moses did, and like Peter and John did when they were arrested, people will take notice. Um, and when we, when we desire the intimacy that Jesus offers us, we go after it and we spend time beholding God not going into God's presence saying, God, I'm here to lead worship. God, I'm here to speak. God, I'm here to lead small group. God, I'm here to collect offering or to do a job. The, the, the change happens when we stop doing and we just be. We just be in the presence of God simply for the, the enjoyment of beholding him. And in my life, I think that's when the, the change happened from, from being the kid that goes to church because you've got to go to church two or three times a week um, to you're not a good Christian if you don't go on a missions trip. And if you're not dragging all these people with you or whatever, like there was a, there was a change that happened that I finally understood God loves me and desires my full attention, whether I've done all that stuff 
or not. Like there was, that was when, when my relationship with God really changed. When I can, I can spend time with him and the time I spend with him is now going to have such a ripple effect on the people around me. Not because I'm good at X, Y, or Z ministry activity or skill, but because there's a difference in me. There's a power in me. There's a, there's a change in my countenance. People now see me differently because of the time I've spent with God. So my question um, to think about for a few minutes stems from Romans 12, 2, which says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then after you've been transformed, after your mind has been transformed, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. And I spend a lot of time talking with people and talking with young people specifically. And, and a, lot of, a lot of them, their big question is, how did you know what God wanted you to do? Um, what is God's will for my life? How do I know? And Romans 12, 2 tells us the answer that, to that question. Being transformed by the renewing of your mind, then you will know what God's perfect will is. And we get transformed. Our mind becomes transformed when we spend time beholding him. So from that, I have two questions for you. What is it that you spend your time beholding? Is it a person? Is it a lifestyle? Is it a season of life? Are you waiting to get married with great anticipation and you just can't, so you're so not focused on life right now? Are you beholding a paycheck? Or maybe just a paycheck with more digits at the end? Are you beholding a particular job? Are you beholding living in a certain neighborhood? Are you beholding a family history different than the one you have? And these things that we think about and take time in our mind are what we end up beholding. So we need to, we need to be disciplined to behold the things in our mind um, that is of God. And my second question, why would God create us with the ability to conform, to have that transformed mind to what is capturing our eye? And maybe I didn't word that question correctly or clearly. Why would God give us a mind and a heart and a soul that can be conformed to the things around us? Because that gives us the potential to be conformed to things that aren't of him, right? So if, if we have that potential, why would God give us that? Why would God make us have a brain or give us a brain that and a heart that can be influenced by what's around us? Was it because we wanted to, he wanted us to struggle because of the things that are around us? I think it is so that we could be continually formed into his image, becoming more like him. When we behold God, we become more like him. When we behold God, our countenance changes. When we behold God, people notice. People begin to ask questions. Our countenance changes. Our face visually appears different. 
And maybe you have met somebody who did not know Jesus and then met Jesus and they physically looked different. Um, and so my prayer for us as a body is there is to behold God, to simply sit in his presence um, and to enjoy being with him. And I think uh, based on the, the, the status of our world and our country and our government and school and medical things and family issues, there's no greater time where we need believers to spend time beholding God because then we can, we can process, we can test and approve God's will because we, we have been transformed in his presence and people will be able to notice that. Um, so I will pray and then I think Jeremy will take over, but let's close in prayer. <clears throat> God, I thank you so much that you desire for us to spend time with you, that you aren't uh, a God that just wants people going and going and going and doing and doing, but you're a God that wants our attention and that you want, <clears throat> you want our eyes to focus on you. I'm going to pray for us as a group of believers tonight that the things that we behold, the things that catch our eye will be pleasing to you. And God, in those moments when we just pause and we just place our mind's eye on you, we, we, we discipline our heart and our soul to pause and to think about who you are. God, the, the things that we notice, things that we feel, the things that catch our attention about you, or the things that cause us to kind of want to shy away, I pray that you, you bring those things to our mind and our heart. God, thank you for wanting our focus. Thank you for wanting our attention. Thank you for being a God worthy of us and our attention. Thank you for your bigness and your grandeur and your majesty. Thank you for being beautiful and for being strong and for being caring. And so I pray that you will transform us, that you will renew our minds and that the people around us that we interact with, uh, even via the computer, that they will notice a change in us after we've spent time with you. That our countenance will change, that our words will change, that our motives will change. And God, I pray that you keep putting people in our lives that are great models and leaders, <clears throat> that are great examples of how to follow you. And God, I thank you that there are people who spent time with you that have gone before us and that are in our life now that that we notice, that we can see Jesus in them. And I pray that people can see Jesus in us. And I thank you for this group, God. I pray that you um, just seal within our hearts the messages that you would like us to, to know and to grow from. In your name, amen. Thanks again for tuning in. We pray over you today that the word of God touched you and transformed you as only his word can. Rate us and leave a review if you can. We'd really appreciate it. Till then, keep searching, keep listening for his voice, and we'll see you again next time, fam.